for the blockhead. You owe me restitution! You heard about fury and a woman scorned, haven't you? Yes, I guess I have. Well, that's nothing compared to the fury of a woman who has been cheated out of tricks or treats. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is the last episode of the list for quite some time. Yeah, we're going to take... It's episode nine. It's episode nine. It's a good one to take a break on. It's a weird one. It's It's got some... Uh, it's got a movie and heaviness a not movie. Incons- yeah, heaviness inconsistency here. Uh, where one is, is nice and light and frothing, yours, and one's a, <laughs> yes. real, a real downer, which is mine. Some, you know... Questions asked, they don't get answered. Yeah, that's true. It's a tough one. But we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do weird beers, Mario, and I think you've brought the weirdest yet. Well, yeah, as of uh, well, last week. Now is it still last week? Doesn't matter. Um, Time is irrelevant. Well, we had to re-record part of last week's episode. Well, your number ten in Magnolia because of how how you know drunk we were yeah. by the end of that because we had recorded two episodes and. We hadn't drank for a while. You hadn't slept the night before. I had had a, a bad week, and so I had had a little cocktail before you came over, um, and then just hadn't drank for a week, so got drunk pretty easily. Uh, and so this week I was like, you know what? Let's go out on a on a not drinking thing. Let's do it. And so we're going back to athletic brewing, which surprise, which we did this time last year. Yep. Um, November, all of November was athletic. Yeah, November into early December, I think. Uh, this is one we haven't had, um, but it is it is a uh, it, it's uh, it's all out. It's their extra dark, not an alcoholic extra dark is all it says. I don't know what an extra dark beer necessarily means. So it's not a, they're not saying stout here, even though stout I guess is implied. In yeah, they the do have a coffee darkness. stout that I wanted, oh. but they couldn't find it. All right, Mario, let's try this out. Extra, yeah, let's try this extra. Let, let's let's let's, let's uh, before I drink this, I want to look up exactly what athletic brewing extra. Uh, all out is. It doesn't smell like a stout. Oh, their stout is only 70 calories. This is 90 calories. It looks brown. Oh, I don't want to subscribe. Oh, this is uh, the World Beer Awards bronze winner. Hmm. It's a stout. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe this was the beer I was looking for. Was this the beer I was looking for? This was the beer. Oh, this was the beer I was looking for. Huh. Good work, Mario. Yeah, it's got a it's got a stout taste to it. Um, it tastes like it's trying to be a stout. It has like the the front of a stout and then the back of a, a, a pretzel. A cold cup of tea. Really, I, I get the back of a pretzel. Mm-hmm. Not not what I would not call an everyday drinker. I do appreciate that the three of these I'll be drinking are only two hundred and seventy calories total, though. So that's nice. Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, it's also... I'm going to be eating a lot of cookies this year, so, you know, i got to watch this year. Yeah, this year. You know what? This is, I think, a good cookie beer. Because it has that... It does have, like, a If you take a solid, like, swig of it, 
It's a. Uh, it's actually pretty. It's actually pretty good. I don't think it's. We take like a small. But if you take like a small strip, it's kind of weird. But if you take like a solid swig yeah. of it. Well, this is one of the things. Because well, stouts were so used to like taking small steps and being right. like a flavor bomb. Um, as a as as a person that's married and has fathered vegans, um, I feel it's like, weird how like that's a, a dominant gene. Yeah, it is. The brown eyes and the veganism. Um, I got I got the blue eyes and the omnivorism. I had to go through this a little bit with the vegan cheese, where the vegan cheese doesn't taste like cheese, but also tastes good. Yeah, it's like so. Many. If you eat a pizza. With vegan cheese on it, and you expect it to taste exactly like a cheese pizza, you will be weirded out. I think. But if you go into it thinking like this is going to taste like a vegan cheese pizza, which tastes good, you're have a happy time. You know what? I I regularly get pizza just with regular cheese because it's cheaper. But yeah. I think vegan cheese pizza is better than well, cheese pizza. The Legna down the street is one of the purveyors of the vegan cheese pizza, and they do it fucking right, and they do it. It's great. No. It's, just fantastic. Too bad they are garbage to their employees, apparently, but mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I, the, the, the claims of such. I'm not going not gonna to throw that out there. Not going to say that's the truth. thing. <laughs> but I've, I've heard claims. We funny if most so, of our listeners are the staff at Delegna, and they're like, what? Or they're just like, yes, very much Or they're so. the management Yeah, the Delegna. owner of Delegna. No, oh, we're going to come firebomb your thing. All right. <laughs> Lawrence Kasdan will defend us. I don't know. I feel like we weren't nice enough to him last week. No, we're pretty nice. Maybe he left. He actually, I haven't seen him all week, so maybe he left. That's true. He's just like, oh, they said something nice about me. He's like a real um, masochist. Free, like a genie. We just needed to free him. Yeah. From his imprisonment here. Speaking of being freed from imprisonment, I think it segues good with our first, <laughs> our first movie. Because sometimes when you're behind drums yeah you're imprisoned. shackled to your to your uh, cylinders of sound so the first movie that we're going to discuss this week in our trio of films has a uh, me and tom return a week later to our zoomish through the holiday season and you know what tom it's it's a little hard to hear you at times but it's probably a lot harder for riz Ahmed mm. in amazon studios new film the sound of metal. You sound great. Yeah, right. What? You're telling me you weren't feeling it? You were in it. We don't need to, we don't need to put them all out. I know, but we have to keep filming. hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play it in me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Ruben is uh, one half of Black Gammon. He's a drummer. Uh, they're kind of a, you know, an eight rights, art rights level sort of band. They're kind of have a little small tour. They're sleeping in their RV with his uh, girlfriend, Lou, played by Olivia Cook. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of just going their ways. Uh, Ruben's a recovering drug addict. Lou is... Um, they both are. 
is she? I don't think she's. Is she a recovering drug addict? Yeah. I thought yeah. She, okay. I, I didn't get that. I knew she's recovering from suicidal tendencies. Um. Uh, but eventually, uh, one day, Ruben starts uh, not being able to hear um, at all. He just hears, you know, tin sounds and silence, basically. And eventually, he goes to a doctor, and he learns that he can only successfully hear about twenty percent of the words that he can hear, and the sound's going to get worse and worse as it goes on um mm-hmm. he learns that the potential of cochlear implants is there but it's uh costs 40 to eighty thousand dollars, and he obviously being a poor musician doesn't have that he tries to um you know continue touring but uh his but lou you know kind of cuts that off he she's afraid of him relapsing back into heroin <clears throat> and so she contacts his uh her um what's the person their sponsor Yep. Hector. Um, and Hector gets him connected with this guy in Missouri, Joe, who's a recovering alcoholic who lives in this deaf community. And, um, you know, Ruben has to be there alone. So Lou kind of goes back off uh, to be with her father in Belgium, I believe. Um, and Ruben kind of ingratiates himself with this community. He starts uh, getting closer with this community. It's, it's a you know, it's a, a community not only of of people who are addicts and whatnot. That's a part of it, but also people who have, um, who are who are deaf. Uh, he, he gets uh, really close with um, the children in a class. Starts teaching him how to drum. Uh, you know, really kind of gets closer and closer. But uh, he um, eventually gets offered an ability to kind of stay there. But uh, Instead, he's, you know, Ruben, even though he's not supposed to have contact with the outside world, is, is contacting, you know, seeing Lou and whatnot. And eventually he sells all of his, R, his RV and all of his sound equipment. And he gets the cochlear implants. Um, he goes back to Joe and, you know, uh, says, asks if he could stay. And Joe says, you know, this is a place where deafness isn't a disability. And we got to remind ourselves of this every day. So he has to leave the community. Uh, so Ruben gets... Uh, placed in a hotel and eventually because it takes a few weeks for the cochlear implants to be activated um when the cochlear implants are activated and it's a completely different sound because he's not actually hearing so everything's distorted and tinny and staticky um ruben goes to belgium to see lou um and they realize that uh you know, they, they, they've kind of drifted apart that Lou doesn't, Ruben wants to get back to the touring life and Lou's kind of gotten past that. She's at a place now where she feels better. She, she's, she feels like she's in, in a better state of recovery and Ruben mm-hmm. has a realization that, um, you know, the relationships kind of ran its, ran its course. It's, it's, they, they've helped each other, but, but ultimately, you know, they're, they're not meant to be together. Um, and, you know, earlier on, Joe has talked about how, uh, Ruben never appreciated the moments of stillness that come with that, uh, with, 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 with deafness and just, just, you know, staying in the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ruben eventually s- sits down on a park bench, looks around the cacophony, cacophony, sorry, of sounds around him and uh, eventually takes off the cochlear implants and allows himself to sit in uh, the stillness as, mm-hmm. as we finish the film. Um, yeah, this is, this is a marvelous picture. Uh, it, it works on mostly every level. I do think the second act is a bit too long. A little um, long. Yeah. A little long in the tooth, um, but it's really anchored by an astonishingly great first and third act. Uh, Rizamid is, is phenomenal in this. So is um, um, Paul Ratchie mm-hmm. uh, has Joe. Um, 
the sound design, of course, is ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it has tremendous amounts of attention to detail. Um, I'm not, I wasn't really a place beyond the pines guy and or uh, Derek C on France guy, but I, I, I thought this, the screenplay in that was also a little long in the tooth. Um, mm-hmm. But I think here it really works and it's just really anchored <clears throat> by, by Risen Mead, who's continues to like every time he does a movie proves how able he is to act with his eyes. And that's like the thing about this is just like, this loss in his eyes and like everything is just so phenomenal. It's, it's a, it's a great, great movie. Yeah, I agree. It's very, um, I, I appreciate how modest it is, um, how it didn't try to go. Um, I don't know. I don't know what crazy would be that, that they kept the sound design even, you know, as, as kind of technically, you know, it's kind of like a technical, technically bravura sound design thing where, it's they're they're letting that that sound design do a lot of like emotional work and stuff and i'm sure that took a lot of skill and and what have you but other than that um it feels a lot like like you know that wrestler era aronofsky picture where the you know the camera's not doing a ton they're not doing any trick shots or you know trying to sell any kind of special magic um and then includes like a, a like sentimentality, like all the all the sentimentality of this movie is um, fully earned and is attached to like a real honest emotion. And yeah, I mean, Riz Ahmed does um, some really kind of profound um, profound work here. It also seems like a very honest movie in the sense that like it's I love their I love Black Gammon not no so much as a band, but the idea of the band that it's just the two of them that they play these little they play these punk rock shows that they're, you know, selling their merch out of their, their car. It's like a community. They're living in their car. It doesn't have this kind of, um, it, it felt like it really had a solid take on like the DIY sort of music scene, which I, but it also did. seemed really just kind of, it seemed really down to earth and honest. So the, the movie that I kept thinking about or compare the movie that I've always thought is kind of like the gold standard of this is, is green room where like, it's just a, a bunch of people like in a van going from place to place. But even in green room, there's an element of like um, romanticization of, of the process of the act. Um, like it's been, they've just inge- everyone that was told, everyone that was in green room was probably told to read Henry Rollins, get in the van um, and listen to black flag records and kind of get into that headspace. And this is really just like two people who are just kind of out of options. And this is their one option. And I think, the movie and the screenplay is really good at conveying um, that kind of law, the, the way that they've adapted to their new lives by, by inserting themselves into communities that demand everything of you. So like this little indie rock community, you just have to, if you want to be in it, you just have to do it and you make Mm. it part of your life and you, you do the thing. If you, and then that transposes onto being a member of the deaf community specifically in, in Joe's house. Um, if you want to be there, you have to think about deafness in this way. And it's not like a cultural requirement because, you know, it's not an elitist thing and it's not a kind of, it's not, they're not trying to push people away. It's the idea that like, we are not meant to be fixed. Like there's nothing wrong with us. We are, yes. we are, you know, people in an or So it demands, it demands everything of you. They don't use anything. There's no gimmicks here. Everything's, fully honest and fully realized. Um, and it's great. And I mean, you can even look at like when she goes, when he goes um, to Belgium to visit Lou, 
that's a world in and of itself too. I mean, it's a world so much that Matthew O'Malrick is just there making eggs and cooking something else in a big pan and throwing a party. And it seems like a fully realized world. And even when Lou kind of resists going back into the van and starts scratching again, it's, you know, she's fully adopted that way of life now. And these people have kind of, they take their, um, they take themselves and they give it over to this, to this way of life. And none of those are bad. They're all, I think, honest ways to live. Um, yeah. And I yeah, think that's no. what makes the movie so special. Yeah. I, I really appreciate a lot of, um, it's it's such a close film for one thing. Like it feels very much like it has a, a small group of people working together on it. Yep. it. They worked really intimately with like the deaf community. Um, Paul Ratchy, who's himself not a deaf person, but he's a children. He's a child of a deaf family. Yep. Um, and you know, the sound designer, Nicholas Becker, who also did the music for it actually like lost his hearing for a week at one point. Hmm. And so he tries to, he tried really hard to emulate that, into the sound design um but you go so far as to have like darius martyr's brother abraham martyr who co-wrote the screenplay also did like what i think is like that excellent song he also worked on the music at the end of the film that green yeah, yeah. um song that kind of finishes out the film which i think really captures just in a piece um kind of the the sentiment the bit of sentimentality of the film mm-hmm. and have you know even people like olivia cook work on you know the um the opening purify yeah, song yeah. um i think I think that's great. It seems like a real intimate process at play here. And that's, that's what's, what's nice about the film. It has a real intimacy to it um, that I think is done by the fact that it feels so concise and tight. Well, and the, it does. And I think Riz Ahmed, who I think could have, or in a different actor's hands, could have eaten this whole screenplay. You know what I mean? That every single time he's asked to do some kind of slightly bigger thing than just kind of look and think he could have pushed it way beyond there because he, this is like a, this is a star vehicle. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, it's just him and a, and a bunch of people you may or may not have heard of. Um, and he never does that. He keeps everything very grounded. The emotions stay very real. And so when he just kills that donut and then pushes the donut back together, and then he just kills the donut again, um, it doesn't, it it doesn't ever seem fake. It doesn't ever seem actorly. It seems like someone who's really struggling and is just at a loss for what to do with himself. And now he's yeah. been tasked with sitting in a room and being still. And he's just a person who's for the last four years has never been still. We get to see that stuff. You know, this movie is really good at showing us stuff and kind of letting us build our own opinion of, of what things mean to him. Um, and he never he never breaks from that with like an actorly histrionic performance of anything. Yeah, right. What I think's great about it is like it's really understated how well this film kind of crafts that that mindset of addiction. Um, yeah, you know, it, it plays a backbone to the film, but Riza Mead always kind of portrays it with with fear. He always he's always looks scared, except for like when he's with the kids, mm-hmm. where he's kind of finding like a purpose, which are great scenes. And I and I think that first scene with Joe where Joe's like, say, asks him how he's doing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he tries to like put up this wall at first and eventually mm-hmm. just says like, today is not a good day. Yep. Kind of like that, that, that go-to um, saying for addiction, I think, I think it's great. Like this film always carefully plays that role with addiction in the sense of he's someone who's really struggling to stay clean, but they never really like throw that in your face. You could just tell through the understated struggle he's, he's suffering that he is, 
having just a series of bad days and it's constantly on the foreground of his mind to kind of like relapse. But, you know, it, it adds that, that underlying element of, of tension. You know, he's not going to, but it, it adds to the conflict he's suffering. Well, um, it also never judges the addiction because addiction yeah. in a lot of ways, they play it off as the same kind of mentality needed to survive in a, uh, in a deaf community when you've just recently gone deaf. It's the same kind of mentality that requires for you to live in a van and you know drink smoothies and you know do push-ups in like the van hallway or whatever um it's all the, the same not stuff the, not the best form is in need by the way his, they're a his little far there his hands yeah. seem a little far back yeah and he kind of his back was not not perfectly straight on the last couple but it's, a, ones. it's small it's a small space fair, small fair space. enough and it might have been a short yeah, a short thing they didn't have you know they didn't have 85 takes available to them to make Make sure that the, is actually listening to this episode. He was he's now coming to the pivotal film tower to stab me. He's like, I don't care about the glowing review. You know, my shit talks my pushups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's like, it's, so I was so excited. I was so happy to watch this movie because I think one of the things, one of my favorite movies, I think, of the last couple of years, which we talked about the one time, which I think about a lot and I've I've watched again, is um, the Sisters Brothers, and he's so fucking good in that movie. And it's, he's just one of these guys that I want to see more of and stuff, but I also don't want him to get bastardized and turned into a Marvel character or, yeah. you know, do something shitty with his career. Um, like Oscar Isaac insists on doing, um, you know, <laughs> with being snake in the metal gear solid <laughs> movie that somebody <laughs> feels like making. Um, I don't want him to do that. So, but I just, I want to see him. I want to see him do more things. I like when he shows up and things. Yeah. It makes me happy. And he didn't, he didn't die in this movie, so good for him. He didn't get a bunch of chemical burns or shot by a guy. Chemical burns, man. I love that up. scene. That scene's so fucking good. He was, he was in a Star Wars movie, so he did have that. That's true, but it was just... But he's the, in, he's in arguably... Yeah, he's in arguably the best Star Wars movie, I would mm. say. So, The one Star Wars movie with like some artistic merit. Solo? Oh, yeah. Ron Ron Howard's <laughs> one-two punch of solo and hillbilly elegy. Yeah. Um, speaking of Star Wars, and Mario, speaking of and speaking of punches, speaking like of having a one-two-three-four-five punch. Yeah, um, we get to Steve McQueen's third film in his small act series um, on Amazon. It is Red, White, and Blue. Lord, may you protect your servant Leroy. Please keep him safe for his police training. Attention! And grant us the wisdom to accept his decision. At least this way, Dad, I can change things. Get out of my house! Out there, it is us and them. That's how it works. Stop, police! Come out there with no backup! Sometimes I think. The earth needs to be scorched. Replanted. So something good will come of it. If you are the big tree, we are the small X. Sharpen to cut you down. Uh, John Boyega. Finn from the Star Wars, new Star Wars trilogy, if that's something that you're into. Uh, or attack the block. Yeah. <laughs> attack the block. Um, what if there's someone who, when I said 
the Star Wars trilogy, you're like, what? You mean the guy from Attack the Block? He's in Star Wars? <laughs> huh? um, he plays Leroy Logan, um, who would eventually um, go on to found the Black Police Association in the, the London Metropolitan Police Force. Um, in this film, it is 1980? I think it's 1980, yeah. I think it's 1980. I wrote this down, but I don't have it right now. I should have it. It's 1980 again. We're in London. Um, and it's the same London that we've been in in the first two small axe movies. There is 80, a kind of, 83. 83. I think. Okay. Well, he joined the police force in 83. So, okay. So it probably starts, starts a couple of years before that. Um, he's going to school to be a uh, forensic scientist. He is a researcher, he has a degree. Um, and then his father. Um, Ken Logan, played by Steve Toussaint, is 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 messed up by the police, um, is beaten, I guess, within an inch of his life, um, for no good reason, just for being black and I guess being parked in the wrong area of town and have, having measuring tape and showing them the law. <laughs> yeah, um, and so he decides he's going to change um, policing in London from the inside, and he joins the police force, and he encounters the exact same racism that um his father encountered and he he the racism that he kind of he thought he would be able to or he got the impression that he was even actively um kind of rising above it and helping to eliminate um but he wasn't and he's not and so uh when the movie ends the movie doesn't one of the things i love about this film is that it doesn't end with him like starting this organization or anything like that the movie ends with him probably at his lowest point um feeling like he should give up feeling like he's going to quit losing the one person on the force um who um he feels connected to another um uh minority as it were who's equally persecuted um who tries to speak urdu to uh, a pakistani store owner whose whose store has been vandalized and is told not to um, that we're in, you know, you're in England, so speak English. Um, and he's at his lowest point and he goes to his dad's house and he just has a conversation with his dad and they kind of come to some understanding about what each other feels. And then that's the end of the movie. And I suppose in a different movie, if this was a movie that was going to be released theatrically, we get another 45 minutes of montages of him um, defeating all racism and, and, and starting, um, this union, but that's not how Steve McQueen likes to work. Um, it's another extraordinary piece. It's way different, I think, than the first two. It's really understated in a lot of ways. There's not a lot of score to go along with stuff. There is a police chase at one point, and um, like the sound is just John Boyega running through this this warehouse, and then he tackles a guy, and the guy hits him, and stuff like that. But it's really, it's really matter of fact and kind of. Um, I think meat and potatoes is the wrong phrase, but it feels like that. It's just kind of everything. It's only what you need to understand who this person was and what his significance is, but not necessarily to the culture at this point yet. I think the great thing about it is um, Stephen Queen's not necessarily super interested in that as much as he is interested in showing you the nature of this person and how they got to the point where they, we're able to take whatever that next step is. And that's really the important thing is mining this person's nature and then just kind of getting out. You've seen everything you need to see. You understand what comes next. Here is this, here is this guy. This is the essence of this guy. It's very yeah. good. John Boyoga is very good. 
It, it strikes me actually though has has the most McQueen of of the three we've seen so far, in the sense that um, there's two scenes that really stand out. You know, kind of the more prominent scene being that scene where he ex- Logan explodes in the locker room by yep. telling him if he fucks everyone, you know do it you know tell, like do it to my face sort of thing yeah but also after his dad gets gets beat um when he was just running yep um and just like screaming and whatnot like that like that is booing and carrying that intensity of of character you know is is such a mcqueen thing to do um and do so well and this is such a tight film it, it's 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 a it's it's a tremendous one again. Um, I kind of feel like this is just our weekly Steve McQueen is great discussion now. Um, yeah. you know, Which is fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. sometimes you got to have those, those five weeks of your life. Well, I do, I do love all the end of year like, l- lists now saying, like, by the way, we're making an exception in allowing small acts to be a part of this. Because... But it's also yeah. problematic because we were having this conversation about the Oscars earlier and how everything sucks except for you know who might win best actor or whatever and um i think one of the problems they're having which we are not going to have which are with our end of the year list is like they are not recognizing small acts and we are so there's just small acts fucking everywhere on my list and so far it's on mine as well and and it's just like because they're all great and they're all they all do something different and they're all amazing but like other end of year things i guess more official end of year awards things aren't going to have the same privilege of putting John Boyega up against Delroy Lindo and Chadwick Boseman, yeah, which and is, like whoever else, which is which and like and Sean like Paul Bettany or you know, um, which is to say, actually, John Boyega is fantastic in this. I mean, after well, score, he's carries so much quiet rage and then actual rage, but he's he's carrying this this weight on his shoulder throughout the entire film. Um, that's just so masterfully done. Like he says so much in his face, but he puts first, first uh, puts on his PC uniform. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah he's yeah. just kind of staring, you know, there's three of those staring scenes where he just is looking at something and yeah, you're just and kind of, you're just left to, you're not even really worried about interpreting it. You just, are, you don't are, have to because everything he's doing is telling you exactly what he's feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that characterization, unspoken characterization that he just kind of, carry through and you get to watch him develop and watch him kind of form right there on screen and it's um it's just kind of amazing and frankly i didn't i after star wars i'm not wasn't sure that boyega had it in him to be good um because star wars just crushes the good out of you um you know that's why benicia del toro disappeared (laughs) yeah um then maybe it is maybe he just can't wash that shit off of him Uh, also also the same but yeah no, like like Boyega plays off everyone so incredibly well here. Steve Toussaint is also great, and the moments they share together are just phenomenal. Um, you know, the conflict of of character, uh, not character, but the conflict of of drive between the two of them, mm-hmm. while still like this this tremendous amount of respect and love between the two is always done so incredibly well. Yeah. Um, to open the film the way they did too, I think it's like the best so far of the three openings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that opening where. A, a young Leroy, uh, Nathan Vidal is kind of just standing outside, just this chubby music nerd. Yeah, I am. Waiting for his dad to pick him up and just to be, because he's black, just to be assailed like that by police officers. It's just, it just speaks volumes to it. I think, it, once again, it's, it's the film to me that shows the most, like I said, it's the most McQueen because it's so 
it's saying it's so much plot in this one, mm-hmm. but it's so tight yeah. that you know everything has a striving emotional action. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's 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 in that vein of shame and hunger and uh, widows. Mm-hmm. Um, Twelve Years a Slave, I still say, is a bit too much fat at points, but when Twelve Years a Slave is on, it's on. Um, but it's just trying to do something different. Yeah, which is it still does it extremely well. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, once again, you know. Just watch all these movies. Well, it's funny because I'm looking. I'm really looking forward to these last two because of the two the that I don't know he... anything about. Yeah, and this um, next one's only sixty six minutes, I think. Right, and it's it's the I um it's it, I, it has another starring role for a person that I don't know, but it's like a it's like a you know a central character. Um, unlike Lovers Rock and unlike Mangrove, uh, which had like a lot of 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 different characters, and Lovers Rock obviously had like the central character was kind of a loose. It's like a loose term to use for that movie, um, but I'm interested in, in in how he does this and what the point of what's what's not what the message is, but like what's the what's the central theme here? What's the central idea? What are we supposed to take away from it? I don't know. I'm I'm oh, I'm very intrigued with this. I would be interested to to see if Amazon um, does another season of these, like in a couple of years, if they ask him to go back and do five more, because I think they're kind of picking up. Um, he's got to be. He's got to steam culturally. I mean, he's got to be tired, right? Like, <laughs> sure. Like, tired of being great. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous that even you know even if these last two are mediocre, are bad, mm-hmm. you know, to to have made what a hundred and sixty, almost four hundred, like three three hundred minutes of great movie in a year and a half, mm-hmm. three different stories. Yeah, you know, like I'd say, Red, White, and Blue is the closest to feeling like a TV movie of the three. It's the it's the closest to feeling like it's a it's not a theatrical sort of release. Yeah. Um and and that's just I think that's the scope of the budget. Like, the, I, think, and I, I but I also, imagine I think it could have been, but he was just like, this is where this stops for me. He had a specific thing that he wanted to do. And oh, it absolutely. Ended where it ended. So if he added another. That's the thing. So if he's adding time, oh, to this, not, he's adding. Oh, I'm not saying that you're saying that he is. Yeah, or he should. I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's like the length. I'm saying the issue. It's like you can see that the money isn't isn't in this one, for sure. Yeah, but it also like, I suppose, but John Boyega probably cost more than everybody who like performed in Lovers Rock. I don't. I don't think John Boyega demanded a lot for this. No. Do you, do you really ask for a lot when you can play with Steve McQueen? I'm sure he didn't because he seems like that kind of guy, but maybe I don't know how Holly or how British television works. Yeah. And so maybe because he was in Star Wars or something, it's like a a wage scale or something. Weird though, Sean Parks, eighty seven million dollars to be in there. <laughs> he earned it. <laughs> he did. You wicked man. Do you know uh, who doesn't earn doesn't earn their money, Tom? I I don't see how this that comment relates to anything that you want to say about this next movie. Oh, I I love this movie, but Gary Oldman does not earn his money. What are you talking about, Mario? And that is Mank. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it? The writer says, "Tell the story you know." 
Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, light, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. Oh, Jesus. You want this one? Yeah, I'll do this one. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do just kind of like a, a different... I'm not going to do like a complete run-through. Um, no, because there's all these like ins and outs. Yeah. That, yeah. Told against a framing narrative of Herman Mankiewicz, uh, the co-writer of Citizen Kane, drafting, uh, dictating basically <clears throat> Citizen Kane to his um, secretary uh, in 1940 after recovering from a broken leg. Um, Mank is this kind of this weird piece of time in Herman Mankiewicz's life. Uh, we keep going back and forth in time to 1940 and back to, to the 1930s when Mank is involved in the studio system, making movies as a writer with a writer's room and stuff, and he gets close to this uh woman, Marianne Davies. Um, eventually he's introduced to William Randolph Hearst and he goes to a series of parties with William Randolph Hearst and he's close with Louis B. Mayer, who's the, um, one of the heads of, of MGM. Um, and eventually it kind of comes to a head with the, uh, gubernatorial, um, run of Upton Sinclair, uh, who's, has this epic program. It's, it's a kind of a socialist program by which, you know, the, you, the government would have bought a bunch of still factories and um, farmland that was back on its property taxes and put poor people to work because this is in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, the studio system, you know, comes together and works against um, Upton Sinclair. They, they create this fictitious sort of series of newsreels to go against Upton Sinclair and yep. uh, eventually Upton Sinclair loses to the Republican candidate uh, Frank who, Merriman Frank Merriman um, Merriam? And, you know, Merriam? Merriam, Merriam? Merriam, yeah and you know during this time um, Mank's best one of his best friends commits suicide I believe that best friend was the one like fictitious character in this too Shelley um, Metcalf is fictitious is he? Was Shelley Metcalf fictitious one? Yeah, Shelley Metcalf was, I believe, fictitious. He's based on somebody. Um, and eventually this leads to uh, his disillusionment, or Mankiewicz's disillusionment with this leads to him kind of like drafting this movie that's going to speak out against kind of Hearst because in this scene where Mankiewicz gets drunk, he kind of says like, you know, Hearst was just a sad child who was lonely and everything and uh, you know, he himself had like socialist leanings. He was really, a really strong socialist at his young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he's writing this back in the 1940s, he's urged by everyone not to, not to do it by Marion Davies and by his brother and by a bunch of others, while he's also still struggling with his alcoholism that has been prevalent throughout his entire life and his gambling addiction. Um, eventually though the movie is written, uh, and he wins best 
screenplay, original screenplay for Citizen Kane with Orson Welles, and Orson Welles and him have been at each other's kind of throats because Mankiewicz wants credit for the movie and Welles wants it all to himself. Um, he gets his credit, and uh, that is that. That's the movie. That's Mank. Mank, um, it's awesome. Yeah, no, I. It is for me. This is an entirely over ambitious film. It it shoots so far for the moon, and David Fincher is trying to do so much here. Um, I'm much more forgiving of over ambitious attempts, and uh, from from a, a screenplay standpoint. That's where this really works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big fan of shifting back and forth narratives. Uh, it's it's trying to do the kind of cute sis and cane thing in itself, and I'm not a fan of the intertitles. However, I think there's just there's a lot going on with these smaller level characters, oh. and these smaller level characters, especially um, Arliss Howard and Charles Dance um, and Frederick Kinsley, are just all kind of like really bringing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis, like Lewis Mayer has, has to be one of my favorite lines in recent memory where he talks about um, the movie business as the only place where you're selling a, pr- the product you sell is, is a memory by, is, is a memory and it's kept by the buyer. Yeah. And that's actual movie magic. And there's so many of those moments there that are so well done. Like when Mankiewicz has that final line, which is delivered with absolutely no emotion by Gary Oldman, um, that, that final kind of monologue against you know, Hearst. It's it's. Inc- I, I love how like on the nose it is, well, but I also just love yeah, just Dance's response to it, and and how they have Hearst response to it, respond to it. The entire organ grinder conversation, um, and Dance also. I think in this is is fantastic. I, I don't know. It's I shouldn't like this because there's so much wrong with it, <laughs> but it's it tries so hard. And mm-hmm. it's so re- it's so earnestly trying hard. Yeah, it it doesn't have this this level of it's not facetious and it's not um doing these things to for a plum. It's it's doing these things because it feels like Fincher's really invested in it, and that's why I, I felt close to it because it feels like he's really trying out of a love for his dad's script. Well, so I know, that's that's kind of how it, I don't know. That's I appreciated that. So you just said a bunch of stuff that I can I can piggyback on. And one Gary of Oldman is, sucks in it though. And, and we, we'll get to that. And because I think it's really in a weird, weird way. He's like he's like medi- like incredibly mediocre. It's very strange, and I think I think it warrants like a a, a separate like five to seven minutes on like yeah, just like something something is off with the Oldman performance. Bill uh, Nye though. Bill Nye's great. <laughs> is very good um you can he actually it's funny when he's standing up there on that podium and you see him from the back you're just like that is bill nye i don't know how like it you just know it like i know i knew that it was him but it's like oh he just seems like bill nye he's like the most bill nye up in sinclair ever um, i do i do like i do like the casting of him as up in sinclair yeah, yeah i'm not sure why that's significant but you know whatever i just like it it would have been funny if they cast bernie sanders as up in sinclair <laughs> And they didn't even have him disguise his voice or anything. They were just like, no, just do it. Wear your glasses and everything. Um, you mentioned the word investment, and I think it's an it's an interesting term. I think it's I think I didn't ever I didn't think about the word, but I definitely thought about what I was gonna say in the context of uh of David Fincher just kind of being too enamored with his dad's script or too like in enthralled to it or just kind of afraid of it. Um because it 
I mentioned to you on via text that it seems like it wants to have its cake and eat it too, in the sense that it wants to be about Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter. It wants to be about the screenwriting stuff, but it also wants to be this political film, which I liked way more than all yeah. the old Hollywood stuff. Because oh, I man, could give two shits about old Hollywood. This entire movie, like the Upton Sinclair, Merriam stuff, I was like, oh, this is like, I want this to be a fucking movie. <laughs> the reason I say that is because the Orson Welles stuff seems, and that, here's the thing with, uh, with new Hollywood, everybody, is that we all know how Netflix makes movies. So we know that Netflix wasn't looking at like dailies of this movie being like, you need an Orson Welles scene. And so they put an Orson Welles scene in there. Apparently this movie in its original form, the script had a ton more Orson Welles in it. It was just about Orson Welles. And then they put this, there was this kind of nascent political stuff underneath it. And then they, but they kind of tried to balance it out. But now the Orson Welles stuff seems kind of like immaterial, like Tom Burke, I guess does a pretty good job as Orson Welles, but you're not even sure why he's there. Like when he shows up, you're just not sure why he's there. When he calls, you're not sure why he calls. I'm not even sure why they even bother to bring him up. Oh no. Because who cares? Like I I think, I think he does a really solid impersonation of Orson Welles. And I'm a Tom Burke guy. Yeah. You know, we know that. I just, we were talking about this for like a year. The reason I didn't mention him is because it's true. The Orson Welles, like subplot of, which, which is what it is about him being, you know, the credit aspect of it and like the entire thing that the finale hinges on is not at all about what this film's about. It's about disillusionment with like the thing, the system you grew up in. Right. And I, to that end, I feel like there's a little bit of, um, there's like a little bit of a Hamilton thing going on here where the thing that, one of the things that always bothered me about Hamilton, they're like, Oh, we're going to look at the revolutionary war and this stuff through the lens of Hamilton. But if you don't do that right, it ends up making it seem like the Revolutionary War hinged on Alexander Hamilton. The same thing is happening here, where it makes it seem like from 1930 to 1930, whenever he gets into his car accident or wherever he just kind of, I guess to 37 when he gives that tirade at the party, um, that old Hollywood was just... Herman Mankiewicz was like the cog that turned the wheel of Hollywood and everyone was obsessed with him and everybody loved him and everybody knew his name and he knew everybody's name and he was responsible for all this stuff. You know what I mean? Like he, the movie posits that he lost the election for Upton Sinclair. Is that true? I don't really, I don't really know if it's true. I just know when I watch this movie, it feels not real and it feels like vaguely made up and like did, was David Fincher really trying to say that Herman Mankiewicz was so important that all of these, this vast political machinery and this Hollywood machinery literally turned on a phrase that he said in passing to Irving Thalberg one day? Which, is, which isn't, isn't true because a, Repub- a Democrat hadn't won in California since the late, like the 1896 or 1898. A Democrat would finally win afterwards after mm. Miriam's service because Miriam was just garbage like Miriam had the entire um San Francisco strike with the longshoremen which is the reason why he was kind of prone mm-hmm. like Miriam should have lost like mm-hmm. in 34 because he just fucking completely mishandled that he threatened not to send the National Guard if he wasn't given like the party nomination Sinclair was never going to win that election <laughs> right and you don't you don't win an election by promoting like we're going to seize private land 
to give to other people in right. 19. You don't win that. Spoilers. You don't win that in 2020. <laughs> no, God tried. Um, to that end, I feel like there's just a lot of, it, it's just really, the movie's so baggy and loose. I love Upton so, Sinclair though. I, yeah, Upton Sinclair as like a, as a person is fine. Um, I feel like, like Charles Dance's Hearst is great. I feel like we see him too much. Like, I feel like, because I feel like they see him too much. And when they do have him in there, he doesn't do anything except for that's, the end. And I'm just issue. like, and I'm, I'm just like, he's like, he's like hanging over this thing, but he's not really hanging over it because he's just right there because he's just at this party, just sitting there like to glare at people. And like, why is this party staged so perfectly that like all the people that are having this conversation can like see each other. Maybe that's how parties were in the 1930s or whatever. I don't know. But like, I don't know. It all seems so fake. And it all seems so much like David Fincher had like some things that he really needed to do to get this to work in the way that he wanted it to work. And so he kind of, he kind of gerrymandered a bunch of shit into this without really thinking of how it was going to play. And again, I feel like I'm on the wrong side of this. I, most people I've listened, I listened to a bunch of podcasts, um, you know, are just kind of like obsessed with this movie. And I just well, really don't get it. It wasn't fun. It was boring. Like the Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score was was good, but it wasn't great. It never yeah, nothing it's not here kind of nothing took like that next step. I guess the one pushback I'd have to with with that point is that I do feel there's a real artifice to um, a lot of the film, and I feel the artifice during the 1940 scenes isn't really warranted. Mm-hmm. However, the reason I, re- I I did like the artifice in in the flashback sequences mm-hmm. is it does feel like an homage to you know films of the time like the studio films of the time like yeah. the way that party scene i love because of how it is staged I, it, it has that feel of the films of the time in the sense that everyone's so conveniently positioned sure yeah um, and i get that um it just it it left me i wish really... i wish it didn't carry over to like the mod like quote-unquote modern uh-huh. 1940 scenes. I wish those were filmed, uh, framed a little more, m- with a little more narrative modernity. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel as though those those flashback sequences, the reason I enjoyed them was the fact that it does feel like there's, you know, there it does feel as though there, there's a real purpose to that. Um, unfortunately, that's kind of, it is hamstrung by the fact that, you know, the, the most artifice there is is the piling on of notebooks um, has the scripts being written and that's like in modern time. Yeah, yeah. I just, time. I think to, I think because of all that, there's a real, I didn't find it, like it wasn't bringing me into anything. So like, you know, I've, like, like I said, I've heard a lot of people talk about this and they talk about like, you know, feeling like you're in the studio system or whatever. And it's just like, I don't really feel like I was in anywhere. Like no. it was, it was very clearly like a, a movie and it, it was very clearly an attempt to kind of ape a specific kind of movie. And I feel like the most problematic aspect of this is kind of what we mentioned before is the Gary Oldman's performance, which yeah. I think should be good, but it didn't feel good. It didn't well, yeah, seem good. It seemed really like heavily mannered and, and, and it almost seemed like all of his dialogue was kind of performed on a, like a, like, on a soundstage somewhere afterwards and then kind of just has that LED, he has an led screen around him yeah um, it just it's it was weird it was really kind of off-putting and i guess if you're going to agree with me then you and me are wrong 
because I, everybody else thinks he's great. I just felt weird. No, I think I think people think he's great because he's surrounded by such strong performances. Like I, the thing that I find most striking is is there's a lot of in a lot of these performances there's a lot of um, affectation. Affectation. I'm sure I wanted to say affection, but affectation to him. These people and, do and, probably have a lot of affection for their characters. <laughs> but there's there's a real intention to that. Uh, like like when Meyer, like Arliss Howard and Gary Oldman together, there's, there's like a real solid playing off of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Davies and Mankiewicz are together, there's a real solid playing off of each other because of the fact that there's a real intentionality there. The thing that that makes me realize that Oldman's performances don't work is when somebody like you know, Kingsley comes in, has Irving Thalberg, and is actually doing what feels like an actual modern studio head would be. Mm-hmm. Something like a studio head of that time would be and is actually trying to inhabit a real person. Mm-hmm. Or somebody like Tuppert's Middleton, which like that entire thing does not fucking work at all. Um, like well, she's good. It's... No, she's good, but she's a real human being. Her and like Ferdinand Kingsley are not playing these kind of like caricatures. And I'm fine with caricatures like that. You could have a really incredibly solid performance with that, but they're inhabiting, trying to inhabit real historical people. Mm-hmm. And so like when Gary Oldman kind of pops in there with this like weird hybrid, you know, caricature mixed with kind of laying low or what, I don't know exactly what he's doing. It, it, it is a sore red thumb because you know, that's when you realize like he's just like trying to play both ends. And that's the problem here. It's, it's he's not being lazy or anything. He's he's, he's No, I think he's trying work here. I think he's trying but really he's, hard, but he's just I think you When you say cake and eating it too, that's Gary Oldman for me. Gary Oldman's trying to play like both this character in this kind of like idealized version of historical Hollywood um in in Fincher's vision, but also like this real person. And right. he's he's trying to play both ends and it just doesn't work. You have right. to pick and a think, side. Because I think he's trying to, I think, so I listened to this podcast and they were like, oh, the movie's great because like Herman Mankiewicz was famously like this um, real, this real witty guy and he always had like a quick turn of phrase. I was like, I shouldn't have to know that to like watch this movie. And that doesn't change the fact that like everything that comes out of his mouth feels totally fake. Because even if he is a famous wit um, and, you know, is part of the Algonquin round table and all this other also, stupid crap. Also, like, isn't, all this, isn't all this bullshit just come from Kale? Like most, like, all yeah. of our history, most of our history of Perman Mankiewicz comes from, like, the fact that Kale was in love with the guy. And which, everyone says is a li- which everyone which is, says is a lie at this point. Yeah, so. Pauline Kale is probably, like, historically in terms of films, like, one of the biggest liars. Sure. Like, nobody should trust her as an historian. <laughs> Well, and that's, and I think, I think, so that's an interesting point. And I think one of the things that probably happened here is that like Fincher, I guess the story goes that Fincher read this Pauline Kael story in like the early nineties and was like, dad, you should write a script based on Which, this. And so I, he wrote I, I, a script. Have you, did you read it? I, I've read I, it. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I went through a Pauline Kael thing. So I was, I was, you know, heavy into the. Pauline Kael was literally just the Brett Easton Ellis of her time. People need to realize this. So I have, this is like a separate podcast that I would, I would, I would like to do about kind of film. Pivotal, pivotal critics. Pivotal critics. Yeah. We just review. Oh, reviews of things. That's actually a great idea. A, a film podcast, just about cr- criticizing film critics. Each yeah. week we just do a new critic. 
That's good. That's the new. That's when we stop this. When we finish the list, that'll be a good direction to go in. Um, to our top hundred pivotal critics. But I just think that because of all that stuff, because there's so much baggage, and I guess they definitely have Herman Minkwitz like saying stuff. You know, they have his voice. There's just it's too much of a it's it just feels too fake. It's it feels like too much of an impression. I don't feel like Gary Oldman is inhabiting this guy. Yeah. I exactly. feel like he's just like playing drunk and doing a voice. I mean, so even when he's I I, I refuse to believe that when Herman Mankowitz was laid up with a broken leg and drunk and or waking up the morning after like inhaling a bottle of alcohol that like had a whole bunch of secondals in it, enough to like bring a horse down or something, whatever they said, that he's going to wake up and his voice is going to be perfectly composed in like it's most Herman Mankiewicz-ness and that he'd be ready, right, be ready right there with a witticism within like a second of, of waking up were from you, bed. Weren't you sitting there what he, like wondering where his hangover was? Well, he's just, he's a famous alcoholic. That's not but how it's famous weird alcoholics that we, work. It's weird that we see him really, like really, really drunk only one time and he's this huge alcoholic. Because even like the other time, like at the, uh, you know, at the GOP party on election night, um, he gets really drunk. But like as soon as he's needed, um, you know, to, to, to search for his friend um, or to go visit his friend, he's like not drunk anymore. And he's, yeah. and, he's, and he's totally fine. I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of the, there's a, a hangover for me, I think, a Gary Oldman hangover in relation to this and uh, Darkest Hour. I almost want to say the Iron Lady. The Iron, is he in the Iron Lady? No, but I was just, it's Iron Lady and The Darkest Hour, the same movie to me. Yeah, they are. They both are terrible. Um, where he's just doing, he's got a thing to do and he's going to do it, but he's not going to do any more than that. The, and the movie also isn't going to, the movie is going to kind of be enthralled to the idea that he's not going to do more than that. And so they're just going to kind of let him do it. Um, it. And it's weird. I think this is, this is my, I mean, I can't say it's my least favorite Fincher because there's a lot of David Fincher movies that I, are, I hate. Um, Ooh, which ones? Well, like The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, it's okay. a terrible movie. Um, I forgot that movie. That, that's probably my least favorite. I, I, like, mean, I, I like Alien 3. Sure, I like Alien 3 too. You know, um, I love the game. I like the game. So it's the thing. So that's. I think I actually, it's just Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It's the only one I. Well, and I feel like I, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is not. It's, I think it's fine it's a cliche it's like fincher cliche stuff so he's just doing the most fincher thing he can i was thinking about this i was thinking about this oh i don't like social network i hate sorry so that's the thing so mank actually probably falls like in the weird middle thing even though i didn't really like this movie very much it falls in the weird middle of fincher's thing for me because i like it more than i like the shitty social network or benjamin button or the dragon tattoo yeah rake and i like it more in panic room See, I kind of dig Panic Room, so I'm. I, I dig. Probably put it I over dig Panic, Panic Room. Room. I dig Panic Room, but I just I put this slightly ahead of Panic Room. So like I'd put I'd put God Girl, Zodiac, Fight Club Seven, and Alien Three above this. Yeah, I would. I agree. And and the game and the game, of course. And Don't know why I skipped so the game. I think there's a couple of things that you can look at with a Fincher movie, and for me, when they work. So I have three Fincher movies on my pivotal film list for people that are just tuning into this episode for the very first time. And thinking like this kid hates pivotal film. We just talked about I have or I this kid hates David Fincher. I have a David Fincher movie in my top fifty. You know what I mean? I, so like back the fuck I, up. Did I have seven on my list? I can't remember. No, I had seven on my list. 
Wait, I had no, I had no Fincher. You had no thing. Finchers. Um, I like Fincher, but I think I like Fincher best when he's working with wild cards. When there's some kind of X, like X factor in his movies that's kind of unpredictable and like doesn't work on the same level that like everybody else is working. So that's you know Brad Pitt in Fight Club is kind of an X factor. Um, you know everybody in seven is is kind of working on that rosamund pike and gone girl is not like working on the same level as everybody else she's doing something different um excuse me um oh i forgot his name now never mind tyler who? i was i was trying to think of uh, tyler my camera's last name now who joke the joke is gone the joke oh, okay. is lost i was thinking <laughs> of tyler tyler perry it's on a separate level in that film oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, what's his name? What's Doogie Howser's name? Neil Patrick Harris. Harris, yeah. Um, I like Ken Dickens a lot in that movie, though. This this film doesn't have any of those people. This film doesn't have any people that are going out of their way to do something kind of... Or, or, or Downey Jr. and in Jake Gyllenhaal's face in Zodiac. You know what I mean? This movie has everyone that is... Like, David Fincher, I guess, maybe has achieved some kind of um, auteur status where these people are just like, whatever you say, David, I'll just do whatever you want me to do and the most base possible way I can do it. It just, this movie seems very uninspired. Yeah. And that's, that's I guess that's my problem with like, I guess we haven't mentioned like the Amanda Seyfried performance. I think it's good, but it just, there's not nothing behind it. Like I know she's right now the front runner for supporting actress, Which but like. just blows my mind. She's good. She's but, fine. But it's just, yeah. It's, it's like a, it's, there's nothing to discredit it. It's just like, there's nothing digging in there. No, you know? it's, 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 it was a weird experience, and I don't think it would have been helped if I was at the I'm movies. not trying to think my best supporting actress. Well, two, two of my, one of my best supporting actresses is, is I might have to get rid of because of personal reasons. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> if you know what oh. I'm talking about. I'm going to keep her <laughs> because. Yeah, it's a performance, uh, but it's I want to get, get, get rid of her. Um, and I, I I, I do the, have I have Sarah I do have Sarah Paulson in my my running still. It's weird, Mario. I liked her though in that. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Two oh, uh, I, just, I want to I want to go back to one thing, and we kind of talked about it. They, they. I think they they tried to do this thing with Orson Welles, where like Orson Welles is kind of hanging over this thing, and then there's like a big Orson Welles reveal. I'm not sure why they didn't do that with Hearst. It seems like that's the thing to do with Hearst is like give him more to do at that stupid party instead of just letting, I mean, I don't even know what the point of that, that long monologue that Gary Oldman gives is that's just describing the exact plot of Citizen Kane, but under the umbrella of saying it's um, Don Quixote, like give Charles dance more to do, give Hearst more to do during that thing. So like, his scene is really this one scene and it ends with the organ minders, organ minders, organ grinders, monkey um, speech um, instead of just him being around the, the, the Hearst being around things kind of ruins it for me. Yeah. I really, I really, I love dancing it, but I really want to dance to be more of a William Hurt in history of violence sort of character. I agree. hundred percent. Give it, I, I want more like weirdness. I want more. I want it like when he comes in, I want it to hammer more. Yeah, and I think I think the way dance does it, like does that speech, is perfect. Like I think that's solid. But I just think like all the well, I just think that when it ends, you've just had too have, much have to him, drink. Have him, goodbye. Yeah, have him be like in shots, you know, but like one shot, like yeah. in that scene with the party, he's there, 
but he's only focused on like twice or something like that. Well, it seems like one of these things where he's David Finch. So this is where I, you know, have his cake and eat it too. David Fincher has kind of relied on the fact that we all kind of understand a certain amount of what Citizen Kane is about, how it got made, and who like may have been offended by it, or what, like whatever the like the sub narrative is to the production of Citizen Kane. Um, so he 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 does that in a lot of ways. I'm not sure why he doesn't do that with William Randolph Hearst. Like, why do we have to like get to know him and get to know from his own mouth what the nature of his politics is? Because he doesn't even really say much in that second scene he's in at that party. He just kind of sits there and kind of tells people that they're being one thing or they're being another or whatever, or to give um, Amanda Seyfried a look when she says the wrong thing. Um, yeah, just, it seemed like there was, he was just trying to, I don't know, he's trying to make this movie all things to all people. And then it, for me, and again, I'm admitting that I'm wrong here. Um, he just didn't end up making anything that I care about. Yeah. It's unfortunate they made a movie about such a mediocre film anyway. Uh, well, that's so. I guess that's a problem for me too. Is that like he's going to make this movie and he's going to ape the feeling of Citizen Kane or the the the, the uh, structure of Citizen Kane or whatever? Citizen Kane is fun. Like, say what you want about Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane is awesome. This movie is not Citizen Kane, and the fact that it pretends to be Citizen Kane doesn't make it me feel better about it. it. It actually makes me feel worse about it. You're a bigger failure because you failed to make. A movie even as fun as Citizen Kane. Or Citizen Robocop. Kane's not supposed to, or Robocop. That movie. Yeah. Or Support the Girls. Or Support the Girls. Yeah, that was a good episode. That was a fun one. I think that was one of the ones where we, uh, we spent an extra hour like just shooting the shit while we Well, that's, that was the episode where there was so much sound going on downstairs. We moved the table into oh, the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was like the middle of summer, so it was like super hot. I remember that one. That was a good one. Yeah. Uh, the All right, pre, the pre-COVID days. All right, so speaking let's, about lists, we'll be yeah, right back with, with our, uh, mine number nine. Your number nine. All right. Welcome back, folks. My number nine was a controversial pick when Mario first saw it on the list. His claim was that it is not a movie. I mean, I don't fucking care. It's a movie. It's very obviously a movie. Is it a long movie? It is not. Is it a real movie? Well, it's animated, so there's no people in it. But somehow these children, these dogs that are in this film, and it is not Oliver and Company, folks. Although that was on, it was on there. So Mel Gibson animated movies are, are the good stuff. But no, it's not Oliver and Company. It is a holiday classic. Uh, which we will talk about because I don't just bad at the introduction thing. We can go get it one day. <laughs> the running we, theme. We don't have it's like, much time. You have like, eight <laughs> movies to get that right. This, this month off. Maybe this month off. You just spend. I'll just introduce like the movies to myself. I'll write like really detailed introductions like for every single 8, one of these. Thousand word Dave Meltzer esque introductions. Oh yeah, I'm ready. I wonder what he would do for. My number nine film. It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Can I have an extra piece of candy for my stupid brother? He couldn't come with us because he's sitting in a pumpkin patch, waiting for the Great Pumpkin. 
It's so embarrassing to have to ask for something extra for that blockhead Linus. I got five pieces of candy. I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. I got a rock. Gee, I got a candy bar. Boy, I got three cookies. Hey, I got a package of gum. I got a rock. Trick or treat. I got a popcorn ball. I got a fudge ball. I got a pack of gum. I got a rock. I can't tell you exactly uh, when I first <coughs> saw this. I know I was a kid to the point where when I watched this um, to do this episode uh, a couple days ago with my son, uh, I kept so we had a we taped it off the TV. So my memory of um, my earliest memories of this, uh, I can kind of mark where the commercial breaks are, and so I just keep expecting like old 1980s Eminem commercials to start playing in the middle of this film but they but they don't like when I watch it on DVD um, because it's you know it's not a VHS that with a white label that you wrote the name of the thing on you know maybe you had a couple of different shows on one tape or something like that um, so I don't have a specific but I don't have a specific memory of this um, I, I have I guess I have a relationship with it um, in terms of like my kids now, maybe in a little bit of the same way as like the Miyazaki movies, but the Miyazaki movies are interesting because we kind of experienced those together. And when I saw most of the Miyazaki movies, I was much older, so they're definitely animated, and they're definitely some of them are for kids specifically. Totoro, um, you know, Ponyo, Kiki. Those are those are children's movies that are so well made that they can be appreciated by adults. But the the Peanuts movies are 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 strictly for kids, um, or they're primarily for kids. Or they were they were made um, for children, and then they've been adopted by the culture as this other thing. And now they're not just for kids, but whatever. But they're the earliest movies that I feel like you can show your kids like a classic film. Um, you could show a two year old, um, you know. It's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, or uh, it's Christmas, Charlie Brown, or any of those Charlie Brown movies, and you could don't have to worry about anything. It's just animated. It'll be over soon. It's got lights and colors and some songs and blah 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 blah. Um, I was I was struggling a little bit, I think, when I made my list. So there's another movie, another Peanuts movie called um, A Boy Named Charlie Brown. You ever see A Boy Named Charlie Brown? It's the spelling bee. It's like a, it's a feature length. Uh, I'm not. I, I I have not seen. I've seen the the, the Christmas one. Yeah, it's a big one. The the, the tree. Yeah. The tra- yeah. I, I don't like Charlie Brown. Okay. I'm just not um, Charlie Brown guy. So there's a spelling bee one. It's a feature length movie, and they go to New York City because Charlie Brown's in the spelling bee, and it's just fucking great. But I think when I go to these films, I go for synthesis. And what I mean by that is that I'm not one of these people that carries around a lot of childhood memories. I feel like I've kind of... You know how some people kind of get stuck in their childhood and like they think about it as like the best time of their lives or it's like like all these pivotal experiences that like they, be, they learn something specific from their parents and like that's why they do the thing they do. Um... You know, they, or they've been brought up a certain way and it started from childhood and then you go and blah, blah, blah. I don't really have a lot of that stuff, which is not to say that like my parents didn't teach me things, which is not to say that they didn't learn things from people. 
But at some point, I felt like the stuff I learned as a kid, uh, I lost all that stuff and became a real person. You know what I mean? I stopped worrying so much about the things that like people were trying to tell me as a as a child, and I learned other things in a real way about how the world works and about how I fit into it and what my response to those things would be. And I just kind of ditched all that kid shit, and I became a I became a grown up. Mm. Um, and that happened. I don't know when that happened. Eighteen, nineteen, twenty, whatever. It doesn't matter. Or it didn't happen all at once. It happened over a course of, you know, a bunch of years. It happened from reading books and seeing movies and listening to records and having experiences and meeting people outside of, like, my immediate family or the people that I was kind of uh, forced to interact with through the kind of, uh, you know, uh, strictures of, of being in school in the same town for my whole life. You know what I mean? Going to first grade to high school with the same people. Having, like, the horrible experience of going from first grade to high school with people and then going to college, which you've been pitched your whole life, is going to be something really weird and different and cool. And having classes in college with the kids that you had classes with in first grade and second grade and blah, 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 blah. So when I go, when I think about Charlie Brown, I don't, I'm, you know, I put the one of the short ones on it, not because it, it I think A Boy Named Charlie Brown's like a better movie. But when I watch A Boy Named Charlie Brown, I feel adult emotions about what's happening so like i connect to the different things too so one of my favorite moments of that movie is when um uh snoopy goes skating on uh at the the ice skating rink in rockefeller center and and um schroeder is kind of playing this he's playing the piano somewhere else and he's playing this beethoven the second movement um of, i forget which which um sonata it is uh, but it's just, it's unbelievable, and it's so incredible, and it's so great, and it's it's a lot, a lot of animations, like the superimposed imagery that they did a lot of in that film, um, of Beethoven and hockey players and all this other stuff, and it's just crazy. Um, and well, I, let's not say it's crazy. You know, the boy named Charlie Brown song. It doesn't make me think of myself as a child. It doesn't make me think of a little boy. It makes my, me think of, like... Um, my own kid and other people's kids and like little kids in my family and like you know the um uh like the kind of sadness and the kind of big emotions that kids feel but they're not necessarily my emotions it's the great pumpkin charlie brown is i think um a perfect when i say synthesis it represents all those lost things that i've kind of let go of and so when I watch it, I don't think about... I'm, I'm watching a movie, it's a Charlie Brown movie, and it's funny, and it's you know clever, and it's all these other things. But I feel weird stuff. Like... Uh, like, sensa- like physical sensations when I watch the movie. Like, um, remember... The, do you watch it to do this? So remember at the end of the movie where, like, you know, Linus... So I guess to tell the picture, to tell the plot of the story, I'll lead up to it, is that Linus uh, is going to spend his Halloween, he's going to spend it in the most sincere pumpkin patch he can find, he's going to wait for the Great Pumpkin, and he's going to get some toys from the Great Pumpkin, and Sally decides she's not, she's going to skip trick-or-treating, she's going to skip the Halloween party, she's going to wait with Linus in the pumpkin patch. Uh, They wait all night in the pumpkin patch, they miss trick-or-treating, they miss Charlie Brown getting all his rocks, they miss the Bobby for apples, and Charlie Brown using his head as a pumpkin, and all this other stuff. Um... Linus thinks he sees the great pumpkin rising in the pumpkin patch, but it's just Snoopy in his World War I flying ace costume. Sally gets mad. He, she leaves, and then Linus spends the night in the pumpkin patch, and Lucy wakes up at four in the morning, and she pads out of 
bed and her nightgown and then she pads out of the house in her little coat and her little shoes and she finds Linus huddled up under his blanket shivering and then she leads him home and she takes off his shoes and she pushes him to bed and she covers him up. Um, to that, to this day, that just, I, I can feel that sleep. You ever have like a good sleep? Where like you feel shitty and tired all day and like your body is just kind of like, or maybe, maybe like you moved somebody, you know what I mean? You spent all day like in and out of a truck carrying boxes and then, you know, you got some beers and got some food and you stayed out pretty late and when you get home you're just like, ah, oh, just there's a little chill in the air and you put your covers on and you just go poosh, you're just like asleep and it's a great fucking sleep you didn't have to worry about anything you didn't think about anything you were cold and you were tired and your body just fucking stopped usually I, I actually have tremendous anxiety during that and I don't fall asleep no not that but have you had a good sleep oh yes yeah I've you've had, had a good, good sleep I'm yeah. <laughs> talking about that stuff. but like so you've had a good sleep I can when I watch this movie I can feel Linus asleep. I could like feel it in my bones and I crave that kind of innocent sleep where you just are you're you're just done. And there's a lot of things in this movie that are just like that. When Linus and Lucy walk out of the house to get that pumpkin patch, I can like the color of it, like the like the late evening kind of colored fall sky and like the apple that he's eating, I can like sense all of those things and they're I think the the thing that I'm trying to articulate is they're not sensations that I feel like I'm having now I don't feel like I'm capable of having a good sleep anymore I don't think I'm capable of eating an apple that way I don't think I'm capable of like living in a world or imagine that I could live in a world where I just walk out my door and there's just a patch of pumpkins just there sitting there and I, it's a sincere, sincere pumpkin patch and I'm going to stay there all night I'm not capable of experiencing the joy of like trick-or-treating anymore like the heaviness of a bag as it gets full and i don't think i ever really experienced the joy of trick-or-treating but again i could just be a memory or something that i'm not remembering because i don't fucking care about trick-or-treating anymore i've processed halloween and i think it sucks but when i was a kid i didn't have the ability to process stuff but the problem with processing stuff is that you leave things you know what i mean you kind of work through things you uh, you let go of things. I don't think that trick-or-treating has had like a profound effect on my life, so I let go of it, and now I don't give a shit about it anymore. But I think uh, It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, is like an artifact that contains some of the sensations of what being a kid was like for me. And I think it's problematically at nine, because it's a movie that I... I can I can say all these things and you can take it as seriously as you want and is it like how does that make it a better movie than like Magnolia Magnolia I guess actually maybe when we're working at two sides of a different coin and maybe this is the dividing line you know what I mean where uh, Charlie Brown it's a great pumpkin Charlie Brown holds some secrets about what it means to be a kid well, yeah. you know what I mean and then Magnolia kind of represents this area where like the kids stuff is like too it's all sensual it's all it's all sensory you know what i mean it's all right there at your fingertips and like on the tip of your tongue where magnolia represents this kind of deeper engagement with life yeah we're also not doing our top 100 best films of all time like, but my, is... my pivotal film and my other in this film my pivotal film my favorite films are kind of like hand in hand for me i don't really have 
like the ability well, to separate not favorite, that stuff. I should say. You're not saying it's the, the best film. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not It's not Gene Dealman. I mean, that's that would be the best film. Um, but it's it's it contains mysteries that I don't I don't fully understand, mm-hmm. but that I can I can sense. I know that they're there. Um, wh- wh- do you have any thoughts? I hate like um no I I I hate peanuts. Yeah. Um, peanuts. As we do this list, I wonder if I was, I was raised wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, like, the comic strip I was raised on from my parents were, was Farside. Mm. And so that was my, my reaction to... And so Peanuts just felt so artificial mm-hmm. to me. And I still watch Peanuts and it, everything, it, just, it has this real artifice to yeah, me. Yeah, and that's... Um, I, that's and because I, I just, even as, even as a young child, like... All the things I was presented with, um, you know, like one of the earliest stories I remember being read to me is, you know, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, the early, some of the earliest films I saw, you know, in addition to like the Disney films and all that were like Halloween mm-hmm. and all that. And so, um, and there was a, like my parents really rallied against like saccharineness mm-hmm. or, um, I don't know, I want to say artifice, but like, like things that they thought were saccharine. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is this is one of those things, mm-hmm. and so I've just always found it. I've always had to distance from it, and I I have no emotional connection to anything with yeah. peanuts. Um, Which you're not required to. I feel like it's one of those things that like people no. in America are like, "You like peanuts?" It's like, ah, okay. I mean, I, I I can understand what what peanuts is doing. Yeah, it's just the thing that like. You know, be, be everyone that is, you know, now would be in what their sixties or or older has grown up in some way has grown up on peanuts. Yeah, yeah. for the most part, um, and I just never did. Um, it just was something that was there, um, and so when I finally like, sat down to look at it, I just was like, no, I couldn't. And so and so like seeing this, like I said, it's my first time watching. I was just like, Ugh. like I, yeah. I just I just can't. All, all of Pete, like the only, like, if I was to put something of this ilk on my list, it would, like, of, of what it meant to reacquaint myself with the feelings of a child, or as I felt as a child, it would be, um, you know, the, the, the 60 whatever telling of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Mm. Like, that's what kind of gets me in the, the yeah. tune of, of being a child. So, again. and that's really funny because I got no patience for that shit. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it goes back and forth. Again, maybe because I, I have like or Muppets Christmas Carol is another one. That's a oh, that's movie. The thing. I, I, I like I like Muppets Christmas Carol. There's stuff. There's Muppets stuff that I like, but it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't seem to have this. All that stuff is like hampered with a story. Yeah, and my, this is just stripped away to nothing. My, this is just about like a belief system of this little kid, for. 30 for you know 28 minutes and that's it my parents had no fucking patience for things for me to watch that they couldn't also enjoy mm. yeah like, there was nothing that they had me consume that wasn't something they also liked and i feel like i'm a little guilty of that now except for the fact that like, i like a lot of the stuff that like my kids mm-hmm. i'm showing to my kids so it's like kids stuff yeah but we've talked about this stuff like you you've kind of 
had more of an appreciation for certain things because your kids enjoyed it. Well, that's so it's that's true. And but like I wouldn't have watched Jingle. I'm not. Yeah, I, I feel like I've mentioned Jingle Jangle like every episode for like eight like eight weeks or something. In some context. all the way back in October. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but there's definitely stuff that I would not have watched if like it wasn't trolls. for it. Wasn't it trolls? Oh, well, sure, ones? yeah, yeah. Well, the ones they're... you said you would have hated and, like, because they Oh, I do it. hate it. It's fucking garbage, but it's also... It made them happy for a little bit, so I was like, okay. Yeah, exactly. I'll sit and watch Trolls with you. Whatever. That doesn't yeah, matter to me. But I didn't have that experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's... And, and it's weird because I, I think... And I don't remember having that experience... Either, I guess. I don't have a specific memory like that I can point to and say, like, I remember sitting down with my parents and watching this film. Well, how old would your, your parents have been when this would have... When it came out? first came out. Uh, Young, like... In their teens. Oh, really? Or my mom would have been a teenager because it was 66. So my mom would have been... Oh, she would have been... Was it 66? I thought it was 63. Or 66, you're right. So my mom would have been 14. My dad would have been... Uh, Eight. Yeah, it's interesting. My mom, would, my dad would have been nine. No, my dad would have been nine, seven. No, eight. My dad would have been eight, and my mom would have been um, one. Mm. Yeah. So I think, in a lot of ways, so I would have thought they would. I would have thought they would have kind of grown up on it. You know, they like probably most, did, but they just didn't didn't hit a it didn't hit no. the note. And I think. I'm gonna guess that it probably hit some kind of a note from my mom, where this is really representative of something that she kind of understood. But I don't think it was ever pitched to me like this is what I think my life was like. I don't think art, and when I was a kid, was pitched to me that way at all. I think it was just like an entertainment thing, was a distraction. Other than music, everything else was just for fun. Even movies that my dad showed me, or took me to, or whatever was never like this is like an important thing it's just like this is a cool thing oh all of it had to be like enriching in my experience I oh yeah like so my dad did not show something. me monty python because i was like he was just like this is funny you should watch it or like you know take me to see batman because it was going to do anything for me he was like i want to see batman you should see batman let's go see batman um and there was examples of that for sure but... yeah um but i don't think no one ever stopped to explain to me why it was good it was just like, this is fun. Let's go do this. I like this. Let's go do this thing. I like this music. Listen to this music or whatever. Um, but he also didn't like shove stuff down my throat. So there's examples of music that I love now that my dad listened to his whole life that like he didn't kind of make me listen to. And I've like given him shit for that before. Like, why didn't you make me listen to more of this when I was a kid? I wouldn't have had to waste like all this time, like to get to this point where this is like one of my favorite bands or this is one of my favorite records or something like this. You could have just made me listen to this forever ago. But like it's, I'm kind of doing that now. When I say I'm doing that to my kids now, I'm saying that like I, my kids mentioned something about, my kids were walking weird around the house and I just showed them the Ministry of Silly Walks mm. sketch, which they just thought was the best. And they thought, and more than they thought that like the walking was the best, they thought John Cleese explaining to Michael Palin why his walk wasn't silly was even funnier. So I don't know what that says that they find, like, bureaucracy hilarious. Maybe I should show them an INDZ the film. disagreements? No, that's the Silly Walks one. It's the disagreements, right? No, um, no, Silly Walks is just that John Cleese is walking around with, like, the Silly... He's walking around, then Michael Palin comes in his office, and he wants money 
to fund a silly walk that he's working on, and it's like just not silly. Oh, so I don't know if you know what else, what else happens in that episode. Was there another one with like the the Bureau of Disagreements? Um, well, um, it's very it similar. I'm sure. I think there was a lot of that stuff in yeah. Flying Circus, um, but I think we have a friend whose name is Greg. I haven't seen him in a while. I hope he's doing all right. He works in a movie theater. So I'm sure he feels things about, you know, working in movie theater at this time. Um, I get... PayPal fucking emails me like a hundred times a day. With money? No, they just like, use PayPal. It's like, I don't use anything. Like, leave the fuck alone. <coughs> um, but he's a poet. He's a published poet. He's got a book. He's been published a bunch of times. And one of the things he's been working on is... Been, I didn't ask him if I could read this. I'm going to fucking read it. Um... He's been working on a series of yeah, He's been Greg. working on this series of poems about the Peanuts characters um, all growing up. He's also he's a huge, he's a bigger Peanuts fan than I am. I'm not like a huge Peanuts fan. I should be fair to myself. I'm not like a like an all, but I like I like I like the feeling it elicits in me, and I have very strong feelings for this movie. Obviously, I'm not 100 sure I'm going to get through this poem uh, without crying because it always kind of makes me cry. But I think it kind of illustrates what I'm talking about in terms of like how it makes me feel and the idea of hanging on to something that you maybe don't know that you're hanging on to anymore or the idea of letting being able to let go of something to the point where like it's gone and it's not just kind of like haunting you like inside of yourself so like when I talk about like I've processed stuff and I've let some stuff go the feeling that this movie elicits in me is clear that I haven't let everything go you can't ever let everything go of your life it's there's always going to be something there. Um, so it's called Linus Sees the Great Pumpkin, Coleraine, Massachusetts, Halloween Night, 58. Meaning that like he's Linus is 58 years old. It's cold here, but holidays are wherever Lucy is, and she and Carl have been here 30 years. The heat made her so crabby. It is nice. My niece wants a huge pumpkin to go with a dozen smaller ones, so we walk, despite bad knees, before treats, late afternoon, and I'm nervous, expecting unscheduled rain. She has vampire ears and Adora the Explorer mask. I offer to buy her the biggest pumpkin she can possibly find if she relents and lets me take a picture of her in our old ghost sheets with two holes cut out. Two holes cut in them for eyes. I was telling Charlie Brown about Lucy's laugh now, and he has demanded a picture of it. My niece agrees, runs, slaps a big pumpkin on the side. The sound loses itself quickly under low clouds. I smile, oddly free of pain. Beyond her, at the edge of the patch, there is movement. A figure rises, or is it smoke? The way it seems to curl towards the sky. My niece calls and points out. My niece calls and points, but I am already aware of him. My heart increases. Sincerity flows inexhaustibly through us. The patch seems to grip and rise. I swell with memory. Sally complaining. Snoopy crossing the German front, and shivering cold of insincere and the shivering cold of insincere ground. Greg Antonini. I made it. My number nine is Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin. Or it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I think we'll be right back with your number nine. Remember, you just previously you talked about that good sleep. Mm. Um, looking for that good sleep. We should have fucking good sleep. The movie I saw at my number nine, I saw after having not slept for 24 hours by that point. Uh, I had a really bad experience with my then girlfriend um when i get anxiety i I stay awake um but the reason this movie shows up 
where it does is not because of the fact that just just alone that it like you know it it, it entrapped me and, and and it has all the 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 tellings of a western that does and that you know i i um during its its two out plus hour runtime you know I, I i didn't realize i had been awake for so long the reason this movie shows up where it is is because of the fact that in the lead up to this film coming out in my excitement i read the book mm. for it um and i read the book way earlier in the year mm-hmm. uh you know this is this is around the time this is a 2007 or truth out yeah um so this is around the time i i i really get into following films that are coming and and you know knowing what the oscar polls are going to be mm-hmm. um and so somewhere around march i believe I, I i read this book i think it's around march um pretty sure it's around like march i don't know i looked i don't know why i just looked up that's the way that's gonna help me <laughs> um and this book just just sets me down this road where I have to read everything from this author. Um, and you Did know, you say it set you down the road? Yeah. Uh, and actually, <laughs> speaking of which, um, it is it leads to uh, reading another book of his. Um, Blood Meridian, uh, which which creates my summer of discontent, as I've talked about, uh, where I, you know, read just a whole litany of of really dark mm-hmm. novels. Um, during that same one, I, I would read Child of God and Sutra, which still stands as one of my, f- which is not necessarily a book of, of of darkness. Does it go on the pivotal books list? Sutra is possibly is probably my my one. Hmm, interesting. Um, it just captures the, you know, my early favorites of Twain, and then even later with Faulkner and what Faulkner I think comes after Cormac McCarthy, mm-hmm. but it captures that sense of tone I want. Um, fucking Pollock's. Uh, what's the what's the what's the book? What's the the thing the movie we watched with uh, Tom Holland? A few oh, um, back. Um, you know, Devil All Time. Yeah, Devil All Time. That that's the example of everything I fucking don't want because that book's so fucking awful. Um, it's a big book too. No, it's like three hundred and fifty pages. Something like three hundred pages. I always so. feel like that's a big one. It's a big book for like that kind of a story. Yeah, but I think Sutra is well, but Sutra's Cormac like McCarthy. Epic, yeah, um, and uh, you know, my wish of seeing this movie um, led me down the path of of finding who is my favorite author. Um, in Corn McCarthy and created my summer of discontent. Um, and I don't think I'd ever felt such excitement for No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you obviously know what we're talking about. Willen, what's in the satchel? It's a bowl of money. He's just a guy who happened to find my money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. 
I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. If I don't come back, you tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Uh, you know what? We still have two Coen Brothers films on my list coming up. Mm. Next week we're going to talk about one, and then in a while we'll talk about next week. And by next week I mean whenever the fuck we come back. <laughs> and, uh, Sometime in January 2021. Um, and and so I had such intense excitement for it. I, I you know, uh, and it, it was able to to meet all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but be- this movie helped me find Corbett McCarthy, um, and that is why my number nine is No Country for Old Men. <laughs> what a way of describing it. You can go whenever I'm going to chop this up. So yeah, uh, the thing I, I appreciate about this film um, is its earnestness to the feeling of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it 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 defies in so many ways um, film conventions uh, in order to carry that tone. Uh, you, you've read you've read yeah, yeah. Men. Um, I, just, I don't know if you agree. Um, yeah, I think mean, we talked. I think it was one of the things we and I didn't mention a lot in the last one, but I think one of the things I mentioned was like the like intense fidelity to like the source material. Like yeah. they really were not interested in. They wanted to cat whatever the messaging was and whatever the feeling was from the book. Their their idea was to kind of translate that. It seems like onto the screen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like there's obviously changes in in focus and narrative. Um, you know, the novel focuses more on Belle, mm-hmm. whereas the film eventually settles on Belle. Um, but the overall thematic arc of this world, indifferent kind of world, in the face of the possibility of, of a greater force, that if it's there, doesn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very deistic force. Mm-hmm. Um you know, is, is felt in every way. Um, Anton Chigars is, you know, everyone still brings him up. I think he's, I think it's a solid character, but it, it doesn't really matter to the um, willingness of good people forsaking uh, their goodness in order, in, in the face of a of, of possibility. Um, you know, and, and, and the people who are not willing to forsake that just getting tired and exhausted. Um, mm-hmm. That monologue from Bell at the end is just, you know, stands to me. That ending is is probably my favorite ending in a film. Huh. Um, and Tommy Lee Jones really, delivers yeah. it with such exhaustion. Um, yeah, and it was it was interesting that like I it was a terrible the like, twenty four hours for me. It was a really dark place and like I like that that entire summer was a really dark one. Um leading into you know this comes out in November, October. Um and it's it's a film 
that like I was looking forward to it so much and then I, I was like knowing what the kind of themes of it were going to be uh-huh. that I was by the point I was I was not then looking forward to it and I was just because I just didn't want to be in that headspace mm-hmm. but there was such an earnest commitment to that theme that it ended up making me feel better like i hmm. got home and fell asleep because because i don't know maybe maybe it's because it expressed the ways in which i sometimes felt um it expressed the ways i sometimes feel as though like you're pushing you're kind of swimming up a, up a river mm-hmm. um you know it, it, it captures that exhaustion it captures that frustration. It captures that confusion of thinking there's a certain level of goodness in the world and yet everything rallying against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the ways in which, you know, that could really pull at you. And I think, you know, the the movie, their, their next, next film after this, I think, is a little more in tune with capturing that. Um, and that's why it's one higher. Um Mixed with like kind of the revelry of of irreverence that that you know they have, while still being deeply um, sad mm-hmm. of a film. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess like this stands there because because it introduced me. It introduced a voice that I was always looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I not I'd been told, you know I I'd grown up in a, in a fairly quasi religious family. My parents eventually became very religious. Um, but the things they said felt insincere compared to what I saw. And and the things they kind of said about, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a dark world, but there's, there's hope on whatever um, didn't really ring true for me. But, you know, being presented with, with, with Corbin McCarthy um, and being presented with this film and, and kind of getting closer to like the ideas that the Coen brothers it, it gave that voice to me of like, you can still have, have thoughts of, of hopes of, uh, and faith in something, but it, you don't have to um, reconcile that at all. It can just, they can exist separately. Mm. Um, they're, they're very intertwined because it's identity, but they're, they exist. They can exist as, as two separate poles mm-hmm. they can exist as two separate parts of who you are yeah and i think what i think something interesting too is that um i almost think he's asking you for the last couple of Tommy Lee jones scenes or the coen brothers or mccarthy mccarthy is i think a little bit is that like you can do that if you want but you have to understand the nature of the world that you live in mm-hmm. and you have to understand that like your thoughts of hope and your dreams or you what you perceive to be the world or what the world used to be or whatever um uh they don't really matter anymore and i think that's the chigur character is great in the sense that he carries that message kind of uh uh without artifice to everyone he meets like this shit doesn't matter like you can make whatever kind of peace or you can rationalize stuff however you want to but like ultimately it it's circumstance. completely meaningless you know what i mean it's just your and i think one i think one of the faults of the movie which is not really fault it's just like one of the things that kind of keeps i think people asking questions about it which is not i guess a fault but um his his little speeches jagor's speeches are so kind of 
vague and obtuse and you don't really like you know he's talking of chance and like the coin and you know all this other stuff um it's not really about like chance per se in it's not chance in like you are you gonna live or are you gonna die it's chance in the sense that everybody is gonna die you just happen to be the person who's gonna die now and in another instance in another situation um he's doing this to somebody else and it's not you you know what i mean and that's 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 it sounds like fate but it's not it's it's more about like when he talks about like the coin had to travel to get someplace you know i mean it got here the same way i got here it's it's more about like where the winds have blown stuff and everything's everything is fucking chance if you know if Josh Brolin doesn't make the stupid choices that he makes and you know investigates the money further like he's not in the situation he's in but he didn't do any of the things he was supposed to do and he did a bunch of things that he shouldn't have done um and now he's in this and and I, that's why I love the the Kelly McDonald Anton like uh that conversation that Kelly McDonald and, and Javier Bardem have at the end of the movie in the sense that like it's he's just gonna he has to see this thing through because why it's just like the nature of of things i think one of the things that i wanted to like from mccarthy's standpoint i mean mccarthy's whole existence is kind of based around or his writing existence anyway is kind of based around that exact idea which is that um we're all fucked and then how do you how do you kind of rationalize your fuckness and how do you make sense of it and how do you live with the knowledge that like everything is ruined I think the interesting thing about his last couple of books is that he literally ruined everything like especially with the road he's like oh yeah now not only is it just a metaphor but it's like no no everything is ruined life was one thing and then it just was just like wiped off the face of the earth and now life is this different thing and it's kind of the it's kind of like the bookend to Blood Meridian where like life started as nothing and then it was kind of getting built up into something and like the nothingness kind of kept clawing at the something and then life just kind of went on and then he just crushed it again. Um, yeah, I, he's like one of the most fantastically dark authors that we have. And even his not dark stuff like kind of has this did you read like all the pretty horses and stuff like that? Yeah, I couldn't get into the um, border trilogy. So I've done or so I've done everything but the border trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't read any of that stuff either. It just never seemed as interesting to me. Didn't seem to have the same stakes mm-hmm. as yeah. like all of his other books, which were just like so heavy. <clears throat> I mean, my major point that I kind of brought up when we did their um, No Country for Old Men on mine was the idea that I think it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of sequel in a way to, or a spiritual sequel to, um, Fargo, where I think Marge and Ed Tom Bell are asking the same questions, and I think it's great that they're in the same positions. They have the same position. Um, in both cases, there's a kind of like stoic psychopath who's you know stalking not stalking people just kind of like is there and Peter Stormare in the first one they're not the same Anton Chigurh and Peter Stormare's character aren't the same um 
but they're reminiscent of each other. Um, in both instances, uh, Fargo ends with a guy with Peter Stormare in the backseat of a police cruiser. There, uh, No Country for Old Men begins with Anton Chigurh in the backseat of a police cruiser. Um, I don't think these are accidents. I think they are things that they're very aware of. And I think one of the things that they're saying is that Marge, Marge seems really con- is, seems really unaware about like the cosmic implications of everything that's happening around her. She seems really focused on like very down to earth things. So having a baby, making some art, you know what I mean, like simple people things, and then. Tommy Lee Jones' Ed Tom Bell just kind of like explodes that thing. And I'm focusing on the movie here. Mm-hmm. Um, he just kind of explodes that. And what the, the thing that he's grappling with is the thing that Marge will not see because she's so focused on like all those, all those earthly things. And he's been recently awakened to the fact that these things aren't earthly concerns. They go beyond what a person can understand. And they go beyond what a person can control. Um, and I think from a Coen Brothers standpoint, I think it's fascinating to kind of draw a line between those two things and just to see how, like, I don't know, like heavy they've gotten in like the 10 years that separate those movies. And then like their next film would in a, in a lot of ways get even heavier because it's all spiritual stuff. They don't even worry about like, you know, bullets and 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 like the manner in which people's head wounds are or are not like a thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's not about that it's become even more cosmic in a lot of ways it's beyond um you know it's not about drugs it's not about like mexicans and all that other stuff like uh, no country for old men has all that stuff attached to it but your number eight doesn't have any of that garbage like it's like stripped away all that stuff and is like the cosmic and like a human to human like emotion you know and it's just i i think it's i think they're interesting films to look at well, together yeah I, I think i think the thing i prefer about my number eight um you know in comparison is the gnosticism of it mm-hmm. um i prefer, you know I, I i kind of exist in that world more so mm-hmm. um so yeah that, that's kind of why it speaks to me more mm-hmm it was more of kind of like a personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of absurdism versus kind of like nihilism is, is a little more in tune with my actual point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think I think there's also, there is a level of absurdism to Cormac McCarthy, like his works. Like, sure. like, he, like I wouldn't necessarily label him straight through as like a nihilist. Um, He's a nihilistic kind of. He's like a nihilistic person view, but there's a real sort of like absurdism to like the fact of like who knows, you know, sort of thing. Um, like it, it doesn't matter, sort of thing. Like it, well, and there's like a sadness to it as well. Yeah, yeah, and then it's a sadness, but there's also like a, a um, there's an agnostic. I don't say agnostic. You no, know, yeah, it's agnostic point of view in the sense of it is you could see what's in front of you, but all the other things of like how you feel. Um, and what the greater points of it may be don't matter because that's not concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's famously kind of always prefer hates, doesn't like most other authors. Um, he just doesn't feel the need for it. And he's mm-hmm. like, he's a really kind of concrete thinker in that way. Um, 
and so kind of it i i appreciate a lot of that in, in terms of the, the worldview i have in what i see in people mm-hmm. but it doesn't speak to me as like a bigger sort of like global feeling and and my number eight does my number eight speaks more to like this like you know whatever the answer if if there is an answer to that it's it's silly mm. um it is it is one that is beyond our own comprehension um and the fact that we try to verbalize it is is hilarious but i think the um, fact i love the fact too though that it almost suggests it seems to suggest and we're talking a lot about your here it almost seems to suggest that there well, they're, they're so closely related right. to it seems like there is one but like you said like we're never going to get it like you know and even if you could get it like it would be too complicated for you to understand that yeah. doesn't mean it doesn't exist yeah exactly um but just no country for old men was 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 kind of a great introduction to having that voice like you know just just i i consider it you know we've talked about my love of westerns to me this is like the pinnacle western um you know it doesn't get better this is by unforgiven's your 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 highest western right i think it's the only i mean uh yeah well i mean if we're considering this a western then i have two westerns Oh yeah. Um, well, I, I I lean it towards Western. Like, mm-hmm. Obviously, like, there are a lot of stuff Westerns that aren't yeah. necessarily Westerns, but um, like it just captures that kind of same beats of individuality. Um, like that, it's kind of like considered to be like that Western idea is is the no thought of the collective, thought of of the self, and anybody that kind of operates underneath the collective is ultimately a victim, mm-hmm. sort of thing, because that's not the the true way by which the world operates. Um, that's how I've always kind of interpreted the Western. Mm-hmm. Um, like I kind of see in a lot of ways like Blade Runner to be a Western. I don't know if that's a common belief. I assume it has to be. I don't know. The original Blade Runner, I should say. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, so like, so from a, a perspective standpoint, like coming into it, it was good to have, it was good to have this entry point of, you know, liking things that had, no sort of aversion to violence or a random acts of violence and no sort of aversion to um, being insincere um, with its its voice uh, or our fears of, of, of offend, offending in the way um, and it just, but it also kind of like led me down this this pathway of having a voice for that, that then, you know, other things I'd read or other films I'd watch would kind of more fully kind of give me mm-hmm. the vocabulary I need to kind of like express the things I'd been thinking forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it's too violent. Then. Yeah. There's moments that don't need like the when he kills the the cop. In the beginning, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think there's any real need for like the artery to his neck to pop. Yeah, that's fair. I think I think all the other, I think that's the only like maybe that and the one guy getting shot in the throat during the um later on like those are maybe too much. I think all the oh other, the guy driving the truck. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think all the rest of them are fine. Yeah. Um, like I have no problem with like the cattle prod scene. Or no, I get that because it's it's in, it shows intention and it's like supposed to be there like he's and a, it shows such an indifference to like you know like a, a factuality to it just like and we need this. to understand how that thing works because i think it's a key 
the key figure in the in the in the movie. It's like well, except for of, it's like part of him. Well, except for the fact that there's like a blood spray coming out the back of the head, and that's not how cattle prod would work. Maybe in like a human skull. I mean, who knows? I mean, have people cattle prodded human skulls? I mean, I've been cattle prodded before. It's not was it, fun. Was it Mike? Did Mike cattle prod you? Mike. No. You went up to dairy, and Mike was just like. Um. Yeah, I, I, I suppose. I just think it's one of those things where, like, I just, you know, the Coen Brothers, I think, kind of revel in that stuff a little bit, and I think this is. We talked. We talked a little bit about this when we talked, we did it online. Is that like it's a very Coen Brothers movie? Mm. It's like the most Coen Brothers movie in a lot of ways, in the sense that it has this sick sense of humor running through it. That's like seems to almost the rest of the movie seems to be fighting against. Yeah, there's parts where it kind of gets derailed, like the scene where he talks to the um, the the one like secretary Chagar talks to it yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. De- like it's funny but it really kind of derails things for a second well so that's what I talked about when I talked did ours where I don't I don't it's a movie that I think is interesting because it doesn't feel like it's correct it just doesn't feel like it's right like I just think Anton like Bardem came with a plan that was perfect but simultaneously too much for that movie mm-hmm. like so they needed him to interact with people I think in a little bit of a different way and they just couldn't do it. And so, like, the Woody Harrelson scene, which I fucking... I love Woody Harrelson in this movie. He's, like, one of the underrated guys in this thing. And he's not even really in there for very long, and he doesn't even really do much, because the background that he gives on Chigar is not any great shakes, and I think that's what he's primarily intended here for, is to kind of, you know, give you some kind of context for him, but he doesn't. Um, Woody Harrelson, like, looks legitimately terrified yeah and he's a good actor I don't know I've seen him do other stuff where he could look terrified and he doesn't ever look that terrified um, and I think that there was like an intention for that for some of the lines that Chigor is delivering to him to be kind of funny um, I think there's some intention for that Kelly McDonald scene at the end to be funny um, but it just ends up not being funny but you can see how they wanted to they were like pitching it as humorous but they just like couldn't they tried it. to like in, insert that absurdism to it yeah, but they, just, like, it's not it's not a, brothers like it's not an absurdist it's just There's not no, it's yeah. just not happening even the stuff that like the josh Brolin and kelly mcdonald interactions in the house like i'll take you back there and, and screw you or whatever that shit's not funny like i think it's it's they're definitely supposed to come off as funny but josh Brolin is carrying a fucking weight on him so he's not delivering those lines even though he's got a little smile on his face the atmosphere in the in the trailer when the, at that moment is so fucking thick that it just can't be like <laughs> yeah or like that's so cute or whatever it's just like this is awkward yeah and weird and maybe maybe they did intend for it to be awkward and weird but I don't think so because they haven't done it they've never done anything like that since and they hadn't done anything like that before like and even the stuff in Fargo is funny like that mm. stuff is not awkward and weird. It's tense because it's a thriller, and William H. Macy kind of comes the closest to approximating what that feeling is, but it's still played for laughs. Yeah, and I guess... And it's I guess, played a, it's, 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 and it, it gets those laughs. And it does the same in, in True Grit, um, but it uh, True Grit, like, is so um, popcorn-y. That, it's so intentionally popcorn Yeah, yeah. that it can, it can have those moments. But yeah, this, this, the material is just so... 
they had such an intention to deliver the material, and they do, but the material is so much stronger than those momentary lapses that yeah. it just kind of sticks out. I feel I found that you know it's funny I said that like, I haven't seen that before. They, it happened a little but bit, but so in the few movie. far between that's not. No, no, but I think it, makes it, it almost makes it a better movie. Mm. It makes it a more powerful viewing experience, where, like again, we talked about Carter Burwell. He did a score for this film. Where it is most of the movie, I'm assuming that it got written and it, they intended to use it, but then they were watching it and they're just like, let's just take it out. And we'll just make it, just yeah. put, we'll put it at the end. But I think this happens a little bit with Lumen Davis too, where I think they went into the, that movie thinking they were making something else, and then they made it, and they're just like, oh, well, Oscar Isaac is ruining this <clears throat> because he's better than this kind of shitty, goofy material that we not shitty, but like goofiness. kind of goofiness, that irreverent. Like, yeah. That the movie wants to kind of keep going, wants to just keep inserting itself into it, and it just doesn't. And that's why I think your number eight is. Probably what I think a lot of people now are considering it their best film. Do you think that? I think it, I think it is. I think it's it's like rounding out into being like, well, there's this one, and then there's this one. Hail Caesar. Yeah. No. No, the Lady Killers. Um, I like the Lady Killers. We talked about this. I know. Yeah. Um, it, if you just don't look at it as like with the same level of just like look at it as like another crime wave. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the things that I'm happy about is I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou is getting fucking left. To die, where it deserves to be, because it's garbage. Megan um, loves that movie. It's that. just awful. I can't even. I can't even handle it. But a man who wasn't there is coming back, as like is being propped up too. That's interesting. Yeah. What Crime Wave? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What it's the Sam Raimi directed movie, but about Crime Wave. Crime Wave, I love. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's they're, they're interesting guys. Yeah, no, agreed. If you want to talk to some interesting guys, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Or you can send us an email um, to pivotalfilmpodcast.gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com. You can see a list of the movies on our list, which I will update at some point between now and January. Or a list of the beers that we drank or how to subscribe or other other stuff. Maybe there's yeah. other stuff there. And it's what it's the twelfth we're doing this. So yep. uh, yeah, we're taking a break from the list. We'll be we'll have episodes every week because there's new movies coming out. We're going remote now again, so you're gonna hear some scratchiness again. Yeah, Connecticut decided um, to suck ass like the rest of the country, and so we are at a our our infection rate is climbing every every day. We were at worse right now than we ever were yep. in the spring. Um, so we're just trying to be responsible for the holiday, like for yeah. the holidays. Uh, we'll probably come back to the list, hopefully sometime, like by the, like the ninth-ish or sixteenth-ish. That'll be good. That'll be good. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I'm uncomfortable like every day. This sucks ass. But um, I think the yeah, I think it's the most responsible thing to do is to just kind of like cut out the things that you're doing that you can kind of live without yeah so I hope everyone else is making similar choices um not saying I'm not gonna tell you what to do but just try to make the best choices not just for yourself but for like everybody in your community and in your life and uh, so there's uh if you need distraction watch a movie drink some beers and uh we will talk to you well next week but next week but in a different context and a different, different. 
Goodbye. <laughs>